Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP. Thanks for joining us in this episode of AJHP Voices. Several factors, including globalization of the pharmaceutical supply chain, have highlighted the need to ensure the integrity and quality of the medications that we use in our patients. Joining me today to discuss their work on process analytical technology in a health system pharmacy department are Dr. Philip Almeter, Chief Pharmacy Officer, UK Healthcare, and Dr. Robert Lauder, Professor at the University of Kentucky. Philip, Rob, welcome. Good to talk with you today. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you. You know, before we jump into a lot of the technical discussion that I think we're going to have, but we're certainly going to talk about practice applications as well, I wanted to actually take a step back. And, you know, the title of your article is Screening for Quality with Process Analytical Technology in a Health System Pharmacy, a Primer. What sparked the partnership, the collaboration between the Department of Pharmacy and the health system and, Rob, in your case, a pharmaceutical scientist in the School of Pharmacy? Can you talk about that a bit? I'm just, I think our listeners would really find that interesting. So I'll go ahead and start. I think my journey started back in 2009. In 2010, I was at the University of Virginia and we had the first ever drug shortage I'd ever seen. Uh, it was sexenolcholine, and there was so much confusion around it. Anesthesiologists were blaming the pharmacist. The pharmacists were saying it's not our fault. And as you all know, that's when shortages started to really spike. Just being on the managing the symptom end of things, buying, managing through drug shortage task force, it's very tiresome for hospitals, considering how much in resources we put into that. And, you know, the FDA over the last 10 years has indicated more and more that one of the primary issues causing drug shortages is drug quality, manufacturing quality. And in 2019, I was driving home from work listening to NPR, and I heard an interview with Catherine Bon, author of Bottle of Lies. And it struck me as interesting. And I'm a very slow reader. So I listened to books because I can't read very fast, but I downloaded that same day, listened to it, and I felt the need to take some sort of action to do something. I'm a health system leader overseeing a large supply chain and not really knowing what I could do. I did want some guidance. You know, we're a larger campus. There's the health system and then there's the larger campus. And I know there's a lot of expertise at the College of Pharmacy. So I started seeking people out. I went to several faculty and some were just not interested. And I feel like when I found Rob, Rob said, yeah, I want to do this yesterday. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a match made in heaven right there. And we immediately started thinking through what we could do as a health system, partnering with the College of Pharmacy, as well as the hospital to make an effort to improve the overall outcomes and quality for our supply chain. So Rob, you wanted to do this yesterday. What sparked your interest? Why was this on, on your mind? I started way back in graduate school in the 1980s doing analysis of intact pharmaceuticals, dosage forms on the shelf, basically in the pharmacy. So we did a lot of capsules and tablets. My big papers were one on tampering 
Remember this 1986 tampering incident on Tylenol? And we talked about how the first time that happened earlier in the 80s, the FDA analyzed 2 million capsules of Tylenol by differential pulse polarography and found seven tampered with out of 2 million. And it took them months to do that. And having done differential pulse polarography myself, I said, oh, there's got to be a better way. And so I built a machine, a new infrared machine. I built a device that hooked onto it that let us look at intact capsules and do spatial profiling so we could determine how much cyanide was in a capsule and where it was. Is it the top? Is it the bottom? Is it full? Is it not? Is it located in the middle? Because different people tampering end up with different configurations of cyanide. And so we could tell how many tamperers there were by the location of the material inside there. So we published that in 1986. And then, you know, that's kind of a niche. It's not the kind of thing that happens all the time. And people started asking us, well, can you do something more proletarian? And at the time, I think it was somebody at Upjohn mentioned, I guess it just turned to pharmacia, said, could you find something like floor sweepings? in a powder if they got in there, if there's just dirt in there. So we did a paper where we found, I think, 50 parts per million floor sweepings in Tylenol. You could do that too. And people started getting very interested in it. And we started looking at just quality from then on. As you look at this, and Philip, you really have started to address this in your response to the first question, but even as you look at the work that's been done with your group, can you frame for us really even further? You've mentioned about how issues of quality are one of the primary drivers of drug shortages, but maybe if you could take that a step further and really frame why there's a need for the application of process analytical technology, you know, the application of that medication medications in the health system setting? Maybe if you could take that one step further. That's a great question. Let me start by saying uh, Health and Human Services came out with a report last year that hospitals are now spending in total $359 million on labor, additional labor, to manage shortages, and $200 million a year on alternative products due to shortages. We are spending so much energy addressing this from the symptom standpoint. And if you really are looking at what FDA is saying, hey, quality is the primary driver here. You feel like you're trying to solve a problem the same way over and over again, and you're not going to get anywhere. That's part of what brought my interest to this process analytical technology. Some of the things I read in Catherine Bond's book, Cleveland Clinic had done some testing in the past. It had piqued my interest. But at the same time, if you are in a provider type setting, you don't have the luxury of testing everything. And the process analytical technology is almost more like a screening. I could not go through my entire drug supply and test it all and destroy it all and then tell my administrators, hey, we're, we're contributing to quality here. I've just destroyed all of our, our supply. That won't go over very well. And so in my research and finding about process analytical technology, I found it interesting that it was an area of technology that was in this sort of non-destructive testing and when I found that, and I found mention of that on the FDA's website, that was one of the key terms I was looking at in faculty profiles. And I saw that on Rob's profile. And that's part of the reason why I went to him, because you need something that's not going to consume our drugs. You need something that's quick, cheap, and effective. 
And that's a perfect jumping off point, really, for some questions that I have for you, Rob, some definitional questions as we start off. And maybe if you could define for the the listeners two things, really, what do we mean by process analytical technology when we say that? And Philip just made reference, and you talk about this a lot in the article, about destructive versus non-destructive processes. So maybe if you could define those for us, I think that would be a good starting point for this conversation as well. Back when I started, it wasn't called process analytical technology. It was very new and everything you did in the lab, I mean, became a new publication. And I was doing this for about 10 years before the FDA contacted me and said, we would like you to be on a group to work out guidelines for what process analytical technology should be. That was about 20 years ago. And I was an SGE, special government employee for the FDA for about two years while we did that. But what it basically is, is it's a scientific and risk-based approach that uses analytical tools, generally non-destructive analytical tools, to ensure consistent quality and safety of the final drug product. And it relies on three basic elements. The first is knowing the critical quality attributes of the drug. The second is knowing the critical process parameters of the drug. And the last one is doing real-time monitoring. So the critical quality attributes are part of that box that Philip talked about earlier. They're the defining characteristics of the drug that directly impact its performance. So the potency, the concentration of the various ingredients are generally critical quality attributes. And the purity of those components and the stability of the components. Critical process parameters are things like the temperature of the reaction, how long the reaction is allowed to go, what kind of mixing is done, what kind of formulations applied, how stable it is in that formulation is part of the critical quality attribute. But putting that stability test in the process is part of a process parameter. And then lastly is the real-time monitoring. That's where you use PAT generally, infrared spectroscopy, near-infrared spectroscopy, or Raman spectroscopy. Those are the big ones because they're non-invasive and non-destructive. And you look to see if your quality attributes and your process parameters are giving you what you thought it was going to do. And this is all done in real time as the thing is being produced. So the FDA was trying to get away from batch production because they knew shortages were coming and batches take too long to process. You have to make the batch and then it might sit for 90 days getting through quality analysis. And if we could do the quality as the process was making it, we could release right at the end and we wouldn't have to warehouse drugs and uh, quarantine them until they were tested anymore. So that was the real motivation for this. The benefits of using PAT in drug production are you get better quality control because if you see something going wrong and you know how to fix it, you don't have to make the whole batch, which is what you used to have to do. Make the whole batch, test it, and if it was actually out, then you threw it away. You're out millions of dollars. But if you understand your process and you understand the risks, that's why they call this scientific risk-based. If you understand the process and you start to see a deviation, you can correct it. And if the subsequent tests, the temperature measurements, the pressure measurements, the Raman that you do, if all those show that you're still in control, you can release that product because even though you adjusted the process during the process, that's the idea. So you get better quality control, you get more efficiency, you get faster drug production and streamlined regulatory approval because you can release based on process measurements and not based on quality measurements at the end. But you do give up something if you move completely away from end product testing. And what you give up, I think that's really important, is you give up market forces. So we've gone to a process where the FDA is in control of everything. And they do a really good job, but we don't know. When Philip is ordering a drug, he only knows what it costs. He doesn't know if there's three generics to choose from, which one's usually the best, which one has the highest quality. Nobody talks about that. So what we need is some transparency in quality, the same way we have transparency in price. And then market forces can be brought to bear on improving quality, which they are not now. That's the next big step. 
I think we've probably gone as far as we can with GMP and with this risk-based processing. You know how people say it's easy to get the first 80% of a problem solved, and it can be pretty hard to do the next 10% to get 90%, but it takes an inordinate amount of time and way too much money to get that last few percent. You have to do something totally different. So we have this government regulatory approach that has gotten us really close to good product, to perfect products. We got good products. We got excellent products. Most of the time, we don't see any problems with anything. But there's a few left that are a problem. They're giving us these shortages. And if we can bring market forces to bear, that's where we're going to get our big bite out of this, where we're really going to make a, a significant improvement in quality. When people know not only what the price of all the products are that they're anticipating ordering, but what the quality is, then we'll make that last move. And that kind of move really has to be made by the market. And in our case, the academic health systems are the market for these things. So they need to share the information on quality, and that will bring market forces to bear. In your article, figure three provides a clear graphic of the use of near-infrared spectroscopy for the analysis of an unopened vial, which I believe that is in and of itself defines the non-destructive process, the fact that it's an unopened vial. It's a bit more of a challenge with a podcast, obviously, but can you describe for the listener how the technology works? And I'm thinking about just walking through figure three. I mean, to help someone just get a sense of what's happening here as you go through this analysis. So figure three shows an integrating sphere. In the infrared, they're typically gold-coated with a gold powder. So the circle you see is actually a sphere, and the vial is set on top of a transparent port, which is often industrial sapphire. You can use glass, but usually industrial sapphire is harder, wears better, it's more transparent, but that's what they'll use. So you put the vial on top of that, you direct a beam of light directly into the bottom of the vial, and light scatters in all directions. The reason you use the integrating sphere is because without it, the light that you get back at the detector is very sensitive to the position of the vial and very sensitive to the orientation, the rotation of it. So by using integrating sphere that captures all the light that's scattering, and you make sure that it scatters a certain number of times around in the sphere before it hits the detector. And you do that by controlling the size of the sphere and the size of the detector. But you'd like it to bounce around 20 or more times, typically. And that way, it becomes somewhat immune to the positioning of the vial, and you don't have to keep rotating it and averaging a bunch of signal. So that's what that's for. It's basically a beam of light coming out of, a, in our case, an interferometer and scattering in all directions and being picked up on the side by a detector that's angled so it doesn't see the bottom of the vial. It only sees the light that scatters around in the sphere. And that's how you get the immunity to positioning. From that point on, what does it tell you? Well, we take that spectrum. We do a large number of wavelengths or wave numbers if you're talking about FT. It's 1,557 for us typically. So we look at these spectra as single points in a 1,557-dimensional hyperspace. And then we do cluster analysis. And so some of the later figures that you see in the paper are these 1,557-dimensional points in space projected on a two-dimensional plane in that space that separates them a certain way that we're trying to analyze. So if I may, trying to think <laughs> the way I process this, because I think probably a little bit differently than Rob being a pharmacist. The way I understand it is, you know, we put that vial on that window, we shine light at it, that light, there's a certain wavelength range we're looking at of energy. That energy shines on that chemical compound. That chemical compound is very unique. It's like a fingerprint. And those molecules and substances in there will vibrate, they will do wagging, they will do scissoring, different types of movement to absorb 
the wavelength that matches those compounds. And everything that is not absorbed through those motions gets reflected. And so I think of it as producing a negative image of what's inside that vial. So everything that gets reflected is not what's absorbed by that unique chemical compound inside the vial. And by doing that, you get a unique fingerprint spectra of what's inside that vial. And sometimes are there points where the fingerprints don't match up? That's why we're here (laughs) because of that. I guess, you know, going back to some of the practical applications, this is helpful. Again, I think the listener really, it's very helpful to, as you read the article, because there are just amazing graphics in there and it really clearly explains the processes and also the results of the testing. But Philip, when you think about it, and Rob already addressed this to some degree in terms of, you know, the role of the FDA here, but what does then a health system pharmacy department do with these data, especially when those fingerprints don't match up, as Rob indicated happens uh, sometimes? What do you do with these data? So what we do with it is we package it, we give it to FDA. And we do publications. You can see things within PubMed that we've found. But we're also quite humble about it. You know, we are looking at non-destructive screening, multiple lots. You know, to look at one lot of a drug, you can't really determine anything. You need multiple lots. There's something that we like to call lot velocity. How frequently does a new lot of a drug come out? And we have found through all of our purchases that about every four to five weeks, a new lot comes out on a drug. And after reaching maybe five lots, we get a better picture. You get more data and you can see where things are spreading. Now, the truth is we are not FDA and we are not the manufacturer. So we don't have that multi-orthogonal box to draw around our spectra to say this is for sure inside or outside the box. We can be curious or suspicious and say, hey, this looked odd to us, FDA. Why don't you take a look at it? You know, But we really are reliant on FDA to take any next steps or measures with that. I will say when we very, very first started this, we were brand new. And we did find our very first anomaly with near-infrared spectroscopy, and that was with acetazolamide for injection. And we decided we would do the destructive testing with it. And we haven't done it again since because it is extremely time-intensive, costly. You know, it just takes a really long time. We ended up purchasing the USP compendial standard, testing against that hiring a third party, asking our lab to do another test. And at the end, we determined that the product did not meet USP compendial standards for the product because per our drug assay, the product contained between, I believe, Rob, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was between 80 to 87% active pharmaceutical ingredient and USP standards said it had to be 97%. So we, the University of Kentucky filed a citizen petition for our findings to FDA. FDA has given us an interim response six months after that, but no additional communications since that. But that exercise in and of itself makes you not want to get into the business of destructive testing because it is so time consuming and you don't know what you're going to find on the end. It's a lot of investment. And shortly after that, we transitioned to just simply screening and relying on FDA. In our communications with FDA, they prefer us to do the MedWatch report route for our findings. They're fully aware of everything we're doing. 
I think it's important to note that even for cases like the acetazolamide, most of the vials were probably in specification. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, 95 or 97 or more percent acetazolamide. We're talking about the ones that the spectroscopy identified as unusual that fell outside the fingerprint ellipsoid. So, you know, the manufacturer could respond that the lot meets specification and be absolutely correct. At the same time, we're saying these vials did not. Zero defect quality control is a philosophy and approach in quality management that strives to eliminate errors and defects in all stages of production and service delivery. It's not about achieving literal perfection, but rather shifting the mindset from accepting a certain level of defects to proactively preventing them from occurring in the first place. In industries like aerospace, food and medicine, even minor defects can have critical consequences. Zero defect quality control minimizes risks associated with such imperfections, leading to safer products and improved public health. While achieving true zero defects might be elusive, the philosophical shift it encourages has a significant positive impact on consumers. It promotes a culture of quality where everyone, from manufacturers to service providers like us, is accountable for delivering excellence. This ultimately leads to better products, improved experiences, and a more sustainable future for everyone. I think another thing, because our circles are fairly small in terms of what other hospitals are doing, and we've had conversations with probably about seven different health systems that want to replicate this work. And I think there is growing interest because if they're like our health system, they're also struggling with shortages. And we've been doing the same thing for a while now, and there's interest in doing something different. But if you have multiple health systems doing screening data, and then providing that data, that high quality data to FDA, that sort of takes needles out of the haystack and provides FDA some valuable information, particularly if they are strained on resources and operating in a global theater. We see this as a way that health systems could provide some high quality data for drugs that are sitting on the shelves right now. You don't have to go to the far ends of the earth to investigate. We could provide that data to you and assist. I see that as a potential with health systems. And you make that point in the discussion section of the paper as well. Rob, there are some real-life examples in the article involving drugs such as cefazolin, pemetrexed, remifentanil. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you can talk a bit about some of the findings there related to those specific drugs. Figure four, I think, is the one that shows cefazolin. And this is what we like to see. And in fact, what you usually see 99% plus of the time when you scan an FDA-approved drug, you get some sort of ellipsoid or a nice tight little cluster. One cluster, maybe a few outliers if you look at hundreds and hundreds of these things, but you know what you expect to get from a normal distribution, occasional outliers. The next figure, figure five, shows a drug that we think has maybe excess outliers. So toward the bottom of the figure, you see an ellipsoidal cluster of vials, and then some that stick out in different directions. And you'd expect that to happen occasionally, but if it starts to happen too much, and if it happens in excess, we do a probability test on it. And if it's in excess of our probability limit, then we end up doing the MedWatch and publishing a paper on it. And then the last one, the other thing you get to see is not occasional outliers, but massive groups. <laughs> in this case, the groups were very far apart. There's multiple lots in each group. And the lots either are one material or the other material, and they hop back and forth, sometimes inside a lot, but in this case, mostly between lot numbers. 
I would like to reiterate that we do not know how big the box is. And this may well have happened in the manufacturer's NDA. And they showed from their clinical trials that it didn't matter which group it was in, and it's all okay. We don't know that. But when we see unusual behavior compared to like figure four, which is what we usually see, that stimulates us to do a med watch and publish the paper. Got it. So Philip, before you made reference to uh, conversations that you've had with other departments of pharmacy and other health systems around the U.S., so at some point, does process analytical technology become a standard part of the medication use process? I think this is probably 10 years out. And I say that because it's such a leap. It took me being very focused on this. I don't know. I think I listened to Catherine Bond's book, and I think I've read it now five times. Mm-hmm. I got very interested in this. Others have as well, but there are barriers you're going to encounter. You have to buy capital equipment. You have to seek out somebody who has, Rob has 40 plus years of analytical chemistry experience. Not every health system has that individual in their organization. And then it takes having a footprint, a working unit that can do this. And I know I talk about this some in the discussion, but you know, I think the investigational drug services team is uniquely positioned because their work increases and decreases you know, throughout the week with a number of study protocols they're doing or not doing. It's not like a steady stream of orders all day. And they are sort of by design have to be a segregated area within the pharmacy because of the study drugs they carry. So it's a nice space to build on this. And that's why we decided to do this early on. They have access to drugs. They're right there with the pharmacy. They can access them. They can test them. They can put them back on the shelf or screen them and put them back on the shelf, et cetera. But I still think it's a a leap just because I know I've encountered several obstacles I've had to overcome. But I think there's also opportunities for technology to improve, to get you know more handheld devices versus something that takes up a whole bench top, like the spectrometer that we use right now. So I think there might be new technology. It could be that something is adopted by wholesalers. It could be something is developed by GPOs. You know, it could be there's a whole other third party out there that comes forward with a solution. You know, that happens all the time in our world. So I do think it's going to be a ways off, but I do think health systems are eventually going to, I hope they would grow in their interest of this because what we're doing today hasn't really changed the amount of drug shortages we're experiencing. But yet a bit daunting for those pharmacy leaders in community hospital-based pharmacies where most of the beds in the United States are not located with academic medical centers. But as you said, if the technology changes in the future, maybe it's more replicable in those settings. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a goal to strive for, to have quality all the way down to the individual pharmacy level. This is just... I think we're on the front end of, you know, a new movement, but I think there is potential. I'm sure somebody is going to come out with something, not me, (laughs) that understands this technology more. But for the time being, I don't think it's going to be widely used. 
know, Rob, you made references to the, the mid-1980s when the Tylenol contamination with cyanide occurred. And that was another era, you know, when analytical chemistry requirements were in the pharmacy curriculum. Actually, you mentioned in the article that the ACPE removed analytical chemistry as a requirement in about 1975. You know, as a BS student at the University of Pittsburgh in the mid-1980s, I was required to take a drug analysis course along with a physical pharmacy course. It was difficult for me to envision the application of that knowledge and practice at that time. But you lay out a, a very clear case here. So my question for you is, should analytical chemistry be required once again in the doctor pharmacy curriculum? I would personally like to see some exposure to it in the curriculum, but I'm not sure the curriculum is so full and the kids are just there so long that I don't think we can do much. I think they need to know that drug quality could be better in some cases, and we can show them how it could be better, and we can show them ways that you can tell. But I think what we really need is, you see this happening now across the country, schools bringing back BS programs in pharmaceutical sciences. And those people would have room in their curriculum to take two or three analytical courses. And like you said, maybe some physical pharmacy that we really don't do anymore, a few semesters of that. If you want to be a good spectroscopist, you have to take quantum, right? So you don't understand spectroscopy unless you've had quantum mechanics. There's no room in the PharmD curriculum for quantum mechanics. So I think the PharmDs need to know when they have a problem, who to talk to. And they're probably in many cases, they're going to end up talking to these BS and probably MS people in pharmaceutical sciences. I will say before I was working in a health system, before pharmacy school, during pharmacy school, I worked at an independent pharmacy in Augusta, Georgia. And you occasionally had that patient who would come and they would say, these ones with the green speckles, they don't work. This is not working at all. And in your mind, you're probably thinking, all right, okay. <laughs> because I think we look at the orange book, everything's AB rated, it should be fine, right? And I think it does put a little bit of, with my experience with this, it has increased my level of clinical concern that I think I did not have at that time when somebody told you that. Maybe they just really preferred this product over that product. I think having an appreciation as Rob said, maybe you don't need to go taking, you know, some of these more advanced courses during the PharmD. There's, again, there's not any room, but having some sort of a component to the curriculum that speaks to certain landmark cases, things that have been found, current uh, areas of research in this, something that can give the PharmDs something in their tool set to inquire further if they need to. You mentioned in the article potential role for pharmacy students as part of this process in the application of these technologies. Is this a potential advanced role for a trained pharmacy technician in a health system pharmacy department? I think absolutely, yes, it is. I think this is something that we could easily train a technician to do. We have used pharmacy interns traditionally just because this whole program is really a partnership between UK Healthcare and the College of Pharmacy. And we recruited them because they're sort of odd hours. We don't like to go right in the middle of the day when things are busy and drugs are being distributed. Doing things in the evening are a little bit easier. 
interns like to pick up these little shifts here and there. We also have a dual degree program at the College of Pharmacy for a master's in pharmaceutical sciences. And so we recruit a lot from that group. One of the very first pharmacists we hired was a graduate of that program, and he had a, a strong interest in this. And so we have recruited most of our help from there, but this is something that easily could translate to an advanced role for a pharmacy technician. And with that, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Dr. Philip Almeter and Dr. Robert Lauder for joining us today to discuss their article, Screening for Quality with Process Analytical Technology in a Health System Pharmacy, a Primer, which was recently published on HHP.org. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary pharmacy practice issues and interviews with HHP authors. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues and via your social media of choice. Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit AJHP.org.